Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 195th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most impressive actors of his generation. He's only 36, but he has been acting in the movies for the last 25 years, doing particularly standout work in films such as 1999's October Sky, 2001's Donnie Darko, 2005's Brokeback Mountain, for which he received his sole Oscar nomination thus far, 2007's Zodiac, 2009's Brothers, 2010's Love and Other Drugs, 2011's Source Code, 2012's End of Watch, 2013's Prisoners, 2014's Nightcrawler, 2015's Southpaw, 2016's Nocturnal Animals, and, most recently, in David Gordon Green's 2017 drama Stronger, in which he plays Jeff Bowman, a man who survived the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing, and on which he also served as a producer. I'm talking about the fantastic Jake Gyllenhaal. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Lynn Siegel, the executive vice president and group publisher of The Hollywood Reporter and Billboard, who has been described by our former editorial director, Janice Min, perfectly as, quote, the unofficial mayor of Hollywood, close quote. I hate reality shows, but if Lynn had a reality show, I would watch it because she's one of the most colorful characters I've ever met. And having spent decades in sales at various Hollywood publications, she knows everyone in town, and everyone in town knows, and most of them also love, her. She's as persistent, persuasive, smart, and thoughtful as anyone I know, but don't take my word for it. She was the 2005 recipient of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce's Women of Achievement Award, the 2006 recipient of the National Organization of Women's Excellence in Media Award, and the 2016 Sales Hall of Fame inductee at Men's Annual Awards for Marketing and Sales Excellence. She also happens to be the person who recruited me to THR in 2011 after we previously worked together at the LA Times, and I'm very grateful to her for that and for her friendship. Lynn Siegel, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, and my mother worked actually at a publishing company. That's actually how I started getting interested in in advertising and publishing. And she was a salesperson there? No, my mother actually worked for the president of the company. Okay. And she begged him one summer to give me an internship, which he didn't want to do. And unbeknownst to me, my mother was relentless. And she said, oh, you've got to give her a chance. She's just a kid. Give her a chance. And he did. And as a result of that, I ended up working in publishing. How old were you at that time when you got the internship? 16 years old. And what kind of a publication? It was all industry magazines. And it was interesting because the company actually had gone on to buy variety. It was called <laughs> Connors Publishing. It was all industrial magazines and trade publications. But That summer, I worked in the PR department, Mm -hmm. and I just kind of liked it. So when did you end up coming out west, and why? Honestly, after I graduated from college, Mm -hmm. I took a vacation out to California. I liked the palm trees and the weather, (laughs) and I thought, you know what? I could make my life here. So I literally came to L.A. with a suitcase and a stereo. I knew absolutely nobody, and here we are. What was the first job out here? The first job out here was working at a retail store called Bullock's in Westwood. I had to work weekends, and I thought, what am I doing in California working on the weekends? So (laughs) I ended up by working for a clothing manufacturer, which at that particular point, I then met the publisher of something called the California Apparel News. And that was sort of how I got into publishing, selling advertising. What led you to Hollywood publications? And were you personally a big movie buff and one of these people that loved Hollywood, or is it just sort of the job that came along? It was by accident because the company I went to work for after the California Apparel News was a publisher's rep firm, which means they handle town and country and all these different East Coast magazines. 
So at that time, I met the woman who became the marketing and advertising director at The Hollywood Reporter in 1980. She recruited me, and that's where I started working at The Reporter. And you have a rare perspective on Hollywood publications because you've basically worked at all the major ones. It started out, as you said, at in 1980 at The Hollywood Reporter and worked there initially through 2006, and then back again since 2011. But in between, right. LA Times from 2006 to 2010, Deadline in 2010. I want to ask you, though, early on, it sounds like one of the people who was important in your life was Tichi Wilkerson, who was the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter after her husband, Billy Wilkerson, died. He was the founder. There weren't many women in positions of power in publishing at that time when you arrived in 1980 here. What did you make of her and just everything that she had accomplished? Well, Tichi was unusual in that she was also the owner. After her husband died, she became the owner of the company. And she was unique in that she understood Hollywood and she galvanized the industry by creating the Showmanship Awards, the Key Art Awards. These are all industry events that really pull the industry together. She started Women in Film. I mean, she really was a visionary and I think in a lot of ways, people haven't given her the credit that she deserves. But yes, she was very, you know, creative and she figured out ways to be the glue to keep the industry together. Mm -hmm. After initially being here, I guess, as a VP and associate publisher or working up to that here, I believe one of the things you did at that time was help to make this Women in Entertainment Breakfast a big thing. And that I can't imagine it was ever better than it was this year when we had Angelina Jolie, Jennifer Lawrence, and Gal Gadot show up. And that was still, even without Meryl Streep, who had to cancel, it would have, it's still an unbelievable thing. So how did that start? Because that's quite a thing you've given to the industry. So the issue started, I think, 25 years ago, 25 or 26 years ago. And we did the first event with Lifetime Television at the Four Seasons Hotel. And basically, it was about for 200 people. And what happened was that it was really a way that We wanted to kind of recognize the people, the women in the industry, because, again, sort of like not getting as in any industry, whether it's the music industry or the movie industry, men still are like 60 percent, 40 percent in movies and TV. And in music, it's 70 percent, 30 percent that kind of run the industries. So we did that 25 years ago at the Four Seasons, and it just has become one of our tentpole events and issues. And it honors the top. At first, it was like the top 50 women Mm -hmm. in entertainment. Now it's 100. And now there's a component with Big Brothers and Big Sisters and a mentorship program. So it's really taken on a pretty big life of its own. It's incredible. So when you had this brief, I guess, five-year hiatus between your Hollywood reporter stints, initially you went to the LA Times. And there, as VP of Entertainment Advertising, you really revitalized the calendar section and launched the envelope, which I thank you for because that was my first job. So what was that period like, though? Because that's really when the internet was first becoming a major consideration, I think, for publishers like yourself. You know, when I went to the LA Times, there was a whole different team of people there. The editor at the time was Dean Bacay, who's now the editor of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. They had an amazing publisher. They had some just great people they brought from Tribune, and they really wanted to kind of own entertainment. So there was a whole revitalization of coverage and things that they were willing to do. And, you know, the circulation at the time was like over like 1.5 million. So they had the scale really to really deliver, you know, massive content and, and advertising to this market. And then the Internet became important. And the L.A. Times kind of really made big investments in that. And then, of course, Sam Zell bought the L.A. Times and the place imploded. Mm-hmm. You then, I, I guess, recognizing that the Internet was sort of the future in a, in a big way, end up going to a blog at deadline with Nikki Fink, who at the time was probably at the height of her 
power and megalomania. And so I just wonder, first of all, did you ever even see this person face to face? And what was it like dealing with her? Because she, I mean, I think she'll go down as one of the weirder, more strange characters, but certainly an influential character in Hollywood history. Nikki and my relationship is an interesting one because when I was at the LA Times, she would call me every now and then to recruit me to come work for her. And I had a lot of respect for her because after the Writers Guild strike, she had been at LA Weekly and she really changed the whole, I think, dynamic of industry reporting. And I give her a lot of credit for the vigor that she had with like breaking news and and really being the focal point for that Writers Guild strike. When I went to work for Jay Penske and Nikki, we launched some print products. It was a one-year, you know, opportunity. It was interesting. That's pretty much all I can say. Yeah. It was late nights that Jay Penske and I had with issues going to press, trying to get forms like finished so we could print them. I don't think that print was really Nikki's forte, but she wanted to do it. And we did them and it was successful, very successful. But then Janice Min was hired at The Hollywood Reporter and she kind of reinvented it. And that really excited me. So it was an opportunity that I kind of couldn't like pass up. And you came here again in 2011, first as SVP and publisher. And then now it's evolved to include Billboard. And so full title EVP and group publisher of Hollywood Reporter and Billboard. Billboard came along, I guess, in 2014. How has that changed your life here? You know, I have to tell you, I think the music industry is fascinating because of all the revenue streams. I actually love the people in the music industry because I think when you look at touring, you look at label releases, you just look at it's a very different dynamic. And somebody once told me at Capitol Records that when you're an actor or an actress, you become the the role that you were actually hired for. In the music industry, an artist, that is who they are. They're putting themselves out there. And, you know, the studios have a certain amount of movies they have to release every year. If you look at a label, sometimes they have, like, you know, a couple of artists. Sometimes they have huge slates. But the ecosystems are completely different, but they're fascinating. And it's a really fascinating industry. Ironically, you're primarily dealing with or largely dealing with film and music. But I think your favorite, if I'm not mistaken, is actually television, right? Don't you personally consume more television than either film or music? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So I was recently watching The Post. This is Steven Spielberg's new movie about Katherine Graham. And I couldn't help but think about you when I'm watching this because here's a woman who comes along into the business at a time when there weren't very many women in positions of power and through smarts and toughness made it to the top. And I have no doubt that you dealt with every bit as much bullshit as she did, and probably more because you didn't start at the top. And so I just wonder at this particular moment when everybody's reflecting on women in the workplace and the way they've been treated and continue to be treated, do you feel that you've been treated differently because you were a woman in the workplace? You know, that's a really interesting question. The answer is no. I've been very lucky because I've worked for people. Teachy Wilkerson was a woman and she was very, you know, supportive of everything I did. I mean, the reason I actually got the job of running the reporter initially is that she kept hiring all these men to run sales and it was like they kept failing. (laughs) And I said, look, just give me a chance. You have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work out, you can fire me. (laughs) Then the rest is history. But then I went to work when I went at the LA Times because I was a reporter for a long time Mm -hmm. here. I went to work for a guy at the LA Times, a guy named Dave Murphy, who has an amazing wife, four daughters. And for the most part, he really loved working with women. So I've never been in a situation where it's like I haven't worked for somebody who was unsupportive of what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that I've been characterized as pushy and aggressive. 
But again, you know, if it's a man that's doing that, it's sort of accepted. If it's a woman, it gets to be a little bit like that's not that's not a good thing. But for me, it's never been a problem. So can you explain for somebody who may not know, what are the primary responsibilities of a publisher and what separates a great one from an average one? Well, I think that, you know, in my job description, if you will, my responsibility is being in charge of revenue. So whether it's in print, whether it's in digital, whether it's in events, it's figuring out how to monetize everything that the editorial department does. And we have an amazing amazing group of editors here. So what the job of a publisher is, is to figure out where are the revenue streams and how to grow your business, making sure it's profitable. I'm also involved with marketing where we do like, you know, decks, meaning promotional mm-hmm. decks for everything we sell. And really just looking at the P&L for the department, meaning profit and loss, uh-huh. so that, you know, what we're spending, we're making sure that our profit margins are like at least, you know, 50%. Mm-hmm. It's very financial oriented. It's being customer service oriented. I think the hallmark of a great publisher is also being very much keeping contact with your clients mm-hmm. and and really being able to and willing to go out on a lot of sales calls and, and be really understanding the business and kind of being a sponge and very curious. I remember Janice Min once said to me, she kind of joked calling me like Scoopy Siegel because <laughs> I'm so curious and I, I ask a lot of questions. Yeah. I think that's important. What is the relationship or what should it be between a publisher and an editor or as we call it here, an editorial director? You, in this most recent stint at THR, the one that began in 2011, you've over the last seven years worked with two editorial directors. It was Janice up until about a year ago, I guess. And then since then, Matt Bellany, one a woman, one a man. In your experience, how does that work? That's a really good question because it's definitely state and church. There's no question about it that editorial runs editorial and sales runs sales. And the business side is sort of its own world. But I think that there is there has to be a good partnership there where, I mean, the irony is that most people on the editorial side really don't care about if somebody advertises or not, their job is to really go out and put the best product possible. And there are going to be times that, you know, there are going to be stories that are favorable and reviews that are favorable. There are going to be other times that they're not. And I think as long as people in the industry understand the value of what we deliver in terms of product and an audience, we can kind of maintain that positive relationship with our clients. And if there's a bad story, then there's nothing you can do about it. You know, I think they're really mindful of being fair and balanced in editorial. I mean, I've never known them to have any kind of axe to grind, but I think that our role on the business side is to be very deferential to them. But, you know, there's a partnership there. And I talk to the editor on a regular basis. I did when Janice was here and I did with Matt. Mm -hmm. And I find them to be great partners. But again, we have nothing to do with, with editorial at all. What's been the biggest dilemma that you've had to deal with as a publisher where somebody calls you up to complain about something? You know, I recently it was in the news that Disney was punishing the L.A. Times. I don't think it was through revoking advertising, although that's often a tactic. But in this case, it was banning their critics from advanced screenings of their films because there had been a story that Disney felt was unfair. What's a situation where, you know, a particularly memorable one for you where you've had a sort of a dilemma? You know, that's interesting. There are two ways to look at that. One of them is that if that happens, and believe me, it has happened here where we've done something on the editorial side where the story is a thousand percent correct, but the film company, let's say, felt the story was unfair because it was, let's say, in the in the window of award season and they felt it was it was detrimental to their film. We lost a lot of advertising. And honestly, there's nothing you can do about it. But the irony about that is that when the AFI nominations came out a couple of years ago and that particular movie did not get nominated, 
we got calls over the weekend like we've got to start like doing business with you guys because like what does this mean and and we want to make sure we get nominated for an Oscar. So I think they realized that they did they punished us to basically feel they were teaching us a lesson, but at the end of the day they really needed us because they didn't get this nomination. Well, there's sort of like a military industrial complex here, right? Because neither of us can really survive without the other. Studios and networks and labels account for a large portion, the vast majority of our ad revenue, and yet also we help them reach the people they need to reach. It's absolutely true. I mean, I think that there is that sort of symbiotic relationship. But And listen, we have gotten punished plenty of times where editorial has done something that upsets somebody. And all we can do is continue to, you know, extol the value of, of, you know, the audience that we deliver. I mean, in in digital, our traffic now is over 25 million on Comscore, and that's huge. I mean, we actually have really, you kind of jump the shark of just like being a trade Mm -hmm. platform, but also very consumer facing. So, I mean, we're just not an industry media brand anymore. We've really surpassed that on a pretty large scale. What's our subscribership at this point? Well, we have 70,000 paid subscribers, but when you have a three-person pass-along, it's about two over 200,000. What does that mean? It means how many people will actually, if it comes into an office, how many people we've surveyed like actually will look at that copy. Okay. So it's it's that copy plus how many other people see it. On the traffic side, on, on you know the digital part, we are monitored by a company called Comscore, and they basically have very specific metrics mm-hmm. of how many people come to your site. And the big thing, though, I think that should be kind of noted is that even though there may be some publications that have greater readership numbers or web viewership, I don't think that they directly reach the people that matter to the people in Hollywood in the way that we do, right? I mean, it's just, and that's partly because we and Variety in particular have been around for the better part of a century. And it's just uh, built into the community in a way that we are staple of what they read. I don't think there's any any question. I mean, there are going to be other media brands out there that, you know, try to compete with us and they do it maybe on a smaller scale. But in terms of what the reporter does, I mean, you just take a look at our women in entertainment issue and event for both like the Hollywood Reporter and Billboard. Mm -hmm. To your point, having Jennifer Lawrence, Gal Gadot and Angelina Jolie basically come with Shonda Rhimes, who was our guest editor of the Mm -hmm. issue, basically making speeches and tied in with this nonprofit Big Brothers and Big Sisters program. And then you go to Women in Music, where we had Selena Gomez being honored. Like at one point when she was got her award, there were 10 million people on Instagram that were watching it. Mm. So, I mean, the numbers are so profoundly huge. And I think because we can actually get to anybody at any level, whether it's, you know, a performer, an artist or an executive, we have that sort of unique position in the market where we have a lot of respect and a lot of, I think, power in a lot of ways. Yeah. For most of the 87 years that we've been around, our primary competitor was Variety. Is that still the case today? You know, I think that, listen, they're formidable. It's always been looked at as sort of a two-paper town. I think that in a lot of ways, when I look at our market share and I look at, you know, our dominance in certain areas, I think our product tends to be, you know, much more, it's much more readable, frankly. It's 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 industry, it's lifestyle. It's got amazing photography that is like world-class mm-hmm. photographers. I think we're on a different level, frankly, with them. I think that Variety tends to be very B2B and The Hollywood Reporter tends to be everything. It's consumer. It's It's got a lot of fun stuff in it where when it comes into the office or somebody's home it's an event people can't wait to get a hold of it i mean i think that there are other competitors out there but i think that with no question the report is number one what percentage of our annual revenue without you don't have to obviously we're not going to get into specific figures here but what percentage of our annual revenue would you say 
for your consideration advertisements during the Oscar season account for? You know, I think that when you take a look at Oscar and Emmy season, it's really almost a year-round business because awards and awards recognition is sort of a pedigree that everybody wants. I mean, it's just no question. And what we actually did this past year was normally we'll look at award season as Oscar season, which is really November through January, the beginning of it, and then Emmy season, which is June and then August for phase two. I would tell you that between Oscars and Emmys, it's probably about 60% of our advertising. It's a lot. Now, one of the people who spent a lot of money on Oscar ads over the years was Harvey Weinstein. Has his well-deserved excommunication from Hollywood been felt on the business side? You know, I would tell you that in the past couple of years, the Weinstein company hasn't really been that much of a player. They have really scaled back because this is a very product-driven business, and they haven't really had the product. I mean, in the heyday when they maybe they had Shakespeare in Love mm-hmm. and they had some of their other very high-profile movies, you know, they were a bigger player. They definitely supported their movies and the talent and what have you. But honestly, I'd say in the past like three or four years, yeah. it's been pretty insignificant. For your consideration, Emmy ads, I read, were up 20% for us over this past year. And I just wonder if you think that, is that indicative of TV and music and theater people to uh, varying extents sort of following film people's leads when it comes to caring about and, and pursuing awards through ads? I think that there seems to be more crossover between the talent between these various mediums. And so I just wonder if you think there's sort of expectations now that have transferred from film to these others. Well, I will tell you, in meetings we've had for award season, the film companies cannot believe how the TV companies have just, they're buying outdoor, they're buying buses, they're buying things that, you know, are just very in your face, if you will. And it's interesting because a lot of these TV shows aren't even, they're on hiatus by the time Emmy season comes. I mean, if you go down Sunset Boulevard now, you'll see HBO like Game of Thrones, like a billboard for your consideration. Because what's happened is that we've actually changed the dynamic of the industry for the TV companies to also look at Golden Globes and SAG as being important Mm -hmm. to campaign for because it's the road to the Oscars. I would tell you that in terms of these for your consideration ads that we we get the tv companies there's just a lot more competition you've got hulu and netflix and amazon you've got you just more product in the market and as a result of it everybody wants to get attention for their actors their showrunners their writers so it's just tv seems to right now be sort of the golden age of great programming and people are supporting it one way that i imagine we could gauge the level of competitiveness of an oscar season which we're in the midst of right now is to see how many films are being pushed through for your consideration ads because companies only buy ads if they think their film or the talent associated with it has a realistic shot. Yep. And so it's sort of an interesting window into all of this. So I want to ask you, how do you, how does this season's advertising landscape look in relation to other years? Well, as I said, it's definitely a product-driven business. And there are some years that some studios have a lot of product and some years that they have nothing. And I think that's really what drives the business. I mean, I I will tell you what's interesting. In terms of the trade advertising, a producer once said to me, I said, how do you figure out how you're, what you're going to vote for? He said, I just came off shooting a movie. He said, I look at the ads in The Hollywood Reporter. I look at the quotes. And whichever have the quotes that really talk to me, 
those will be the ones I prioritize in terms of my screeners. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the ads really serve a purpose in terms of helping some, you know, people who vote because the people in the movie business take it really seriously. Mm -hmm. And they will look at the pull quotes in these ads as like from all the different media of what people like. And that's how they will look at, is this really a contender? So I think the ads really have value. And it really is a product-driven business where right now I can tell you there are a couple of studios this year that have really very little product. Mm -hmm. And yet other studios, which may not have had much last year, are just really like very fortunate Mm -hmm. they got the goods. It's interesting, just as a little footnote here, I've been working on a project about the history of Oscar campaigning. And I found that the first for your consideration, trade ads. I think, you know, a lot of people think this all started with Harvey Weinstein in the 80s and the 90s. The first for your consideration trade ads go back to the mid-30s. So just a few years into the Oscars, we can we have our archives here in the office, and it's amazing to go and actually see that for the reasons that you've just stated, people trying to make their films stand out because, you know, even the most diligent Academy member cannot possibly see everything that's out there. So it's a matter of just making your one more titillating to them. So I guess it's it's a important thing. But we just learned that 37-year-old A.G. Salzberger will succeed his father, Arthur Ox Salzberger Jr., as the publisher of the New York Times on January 1st. Mm-hmm. I understand that The Hollywood Reporter and The New York Times are very different publications, but if A.G. Salzberger called up Lynn Siegel and said, what advice would you give me as somebody who's you know going to be a first-time publisher in 2018, what would Lynn Siegel say to him? That's a really interesting question, because in some ways we do compete with the New York Times. I mean, on the entertainment side, they, you know, have really gone after, try to go after a lot of for your consideration business and tune in business. So on the entertainment side, I probably wouldn't tell them a whole lot. (laughs) But what I would say is to any publisher is just stay very close to your customers, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think that the customers want to know that publishers are really paying attention to their business. They want to be there to understand solutions for them, because at the end of the day, what a publisher is supposed to do is sort of connect the business side with their, you know, their customer base. And I think that, you know, being able to maintain that high level, high touch with your customers is is really important. And then obviously being able to work across the aisle with editorial, because mm-hmm. there is that righteous balance of, you know, editorial having to work with the business side, but not in an overt way. Right. And things are changing now where I can tell you that when I was at the LA Times, we did things that kind of broke the mold of editorial not being happy about ads we'd have on the front page Mm -hmm. that kind of looked a little bit like ads but were advertorial. I mean, things are sort of changing of like what some of the the new norms are. And, you know, editorial does really resist some of that. And it is having a good relationship with editorial to be able to, you know, have success in those new sort of platforms. Because you are a very funny person, I want to end with two stories that illustrate that. First, as Part of your job, you and your team are always looking for innovative promotions like wraparound covers, attachments, and things like that. In 2013, an advertising partner called Dog for Dog paid $45,000 in exchange for THR attaching its gluten-free canine snack bars to issues of the magazine. Now, to quote from a New York Times story that followed this, quote, But when the issue landed on desks, more than a few readers thought the blueberry-flavored dogs bar was a treat for them. Quote, Yes, we heard people ate the dog bar thinking it was for humans, Lynn Siegel, the Hollywood Reporter's publisher, told the New York Times, quote, on the plus side, it was gluten-free. So <laughs> I thought that was, I was dying laughing. That was, that, that's true. That it's was, true story. And number two, I need you to kind of explain the story. I've, you and I have sat next to each other en route to and at many award shows. It makes it a lot of fun. And one of the things that I've 
caught on to from this is that after I think now seven Oscars ceremonies together, something like that, when you come out of the Oscars, you go to the governor's ball. And when you come out of the governor's ball, they hand guests a little chocolate Oscar wrapped in foil and enclosed in a little box (laughs) that looks eerily like a coffin. Most people like me are pigs and eat them right away. You, however, do something else with them. Can you share what that is? I do. I actually have a whole freezer of little Oscar men. I have probably 20 years of Oscar men in all kinds of different, like Wolfgang Puck has changed the shape of them. And I know that this is something you find really fascinating. But I mean, I do have like a whole little army of these Oscar statuettes. It's a morgue. It's a morgue. It's a morgue of these statuettes. And they're all, some of them are still in their like saran wrap with their bows. Some of them are in the boxes now because Wolfgang has changed how he packages them. But it's like my little souvenir. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. And that's sort of like the one thing that I know you think is sort of hilarious. And it kind of is when you you put it in that context. But yes, I have a whole freezer of like these little Oscar statuettes. Well, we are... Very lucky to have you not only on the podcast, but here at THR. And so thank you for doing this. Thank you, Scott. And now for my interview with Jake Gyllenhaal. Over the course of our conversation at the Mark Hotel on New York's Upper East Side, the 36-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How a kid born to a writer, Naomi Foner, and a director, Stephen Gyllenhaal, followed his older sister, Maggie Gyllenhaal, into acting and learned, through a few bumps along the way, how to balance school and work, how a period of teenager in transition roles, most notably in Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko, eventually came to an end in 2005 when he played decidedly grown-up characters in several major movies, including Ang Lee's landmark Brokeback Mountain, the making and reception of which totally changed Gyllenhaal's life and career, what he learned about himself from his experience making and the critical and commercial failure of 2010's Prince of Persia The Sands of Time, a $200 million adaptation of a video game, and how he then recalibrated his approach to work and embarked upon a streak that continues to this day of daring and mind-blowing screen performances. Source Code in 2011, End of Watch in 2012, Prisoners in 2013, Nightcrawler in 2014, Southpaw in 2015, Nocturnal Animals in 2016, and Stronger in 2017, in between which he also gave widely hailed stage performances in 2012's off-Broadway production If There Is, I Haven't Found It Yet, his 2015 Broadway debut, Constellations, and, most unexpectedly, as the singing lead of an extraordinary 2017 Broadway revival of Stephen Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George. And we also talk about the very personal reasons why, for him, Stronger is the most important film of his career thus far. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Jake, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We always begin by asking our guests where they were born and raised and what their folks did for a living. You were actually sort of born into this business, right? Not to take anything away from your no, that's efforts fine. to get here. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was. I was born in Los Angeles at Cedar sinai <laughs> and to Naomi Foner and Stephen Gyllenhaal. My mother is a screenwriter mm-hmm. and a producer. And at this point, also a director. She yeah. directed one film. And then my father is a director, and he's directed films and television. And that's what I was born into. And as much as that is relevant, I get or interesting, <laughs> I think that I the, what you've said in the past was that the biggest influence, I guess, for you in terms of wanting to get into 
acting or business or whatever was actually having an older sister by the name of Maggie Gyllenhaal, right? Yes, she happens to do the same thing. <laughs> How much older is she? She's three years older. Yeah. Though now at this point in our lives, they ask who's older. So <laughs> we've reached that point. Right. But watching her act mm-hmm. or have fun on a stage when we were really young was a huge influence on me. And then also just, I think just the nature of performing, there's something about expression. I've been thinking about that a lot. Mm-hmm. I think maybe you hit a point of time in your life where you're like, why? Right particularly when you've done it from such a young age. Because your first film role was at 11. Yeah. City Slickers. Yeah. So that's been a while already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to make you Yeah, uh, no, <laughs> it's been 25 years. Jesus. Yeah, 25 years since that. And I think the desires were different, but mm-hmm. there actually weren't really that different. And they were laced with, I think, probably some sort of love of or need for love mm-hmm. somewhere. And then also just the joy that expression brings so what was going on before City Slickers? Like, and how did you end up going out for a movie for the first time? You'd already been acting just in school or what? Yeah, it's not wholly clear to me. Though I had been acting in school, I was doing sort of school plays and things like that. And there was a parent at the school who was an agent and sort of saw something that I did and said, you know, maybe you should go out for things. And my parents thought that was odd. (laughs) But I had some sort of desire. It's not clear exactly when. And then I just started going out on auditions, uh, different ones, really young. I think I was like nine or ten. And your parents were pretty big on regulating this, right? I mean, it wasn't like this was going to take over your life for, for quite a while, right? Absolutely not. Yeah, they were not. I think they were very aware of it being an adult business, and they're pretty conscientious in that way. And I think they really knew also just because, you know, the truth of the matter is, though my parents are both filmmakers, the history that I feel most intensely is like, are my grandparents and my mom's side, they're all doctors. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather was a surgeon and my grandmother was a pediatrician and one of the first female pediatricians in Brooklyn. And my great aunt was one of the first women in the first graduating class at Columbia University Law School. So there are a lot of very driven people on that side of the family. And the same thing on my dad's side in a different way. You know, my dad came from a a pretty religious town in Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania and really kind of broke out of that space and has five brothers and sisters and that work ethic was always a huge part of both my parents. And the idea of if you have the opportunity for education, you must get it and you must appreciate it and you must get as much as you can from it. So that was always ingrained in me and particularly from my grandparents mm-hmm. and on my mom's side, particularly who are immigrants. So I think like that idea was very important in my family. And weirdly in the hubbub of a story when you're talking with journalists about where you come from, a lot of times what's emphasized is you grew up in this Hollywood family. And in truth, you know, my grandfather sort of, as I realize it now, getting to a certain age was one of the biggest influences Mm -hmm. on me. Well, and so as you're growing up, there's obviously, as you say, this emphasis on school, which means that with some of these opportunities, you you do City Slickers at 11, but then shortly after that, you're not going to be allowed to do, from what I read, the Mighty Ducks or some of these other, right? I mean, yeah. what what was the the reasoning though was that it cannot interrupt your day-to-day life, right? Yeah, I think when a kid gets opportunity, it's confusing, you know? You are not fully developed in a lot of ways and I think being around 
the harshness of elementary school and into high school is really important, mm-hmm. you know, for the ego in particular, really gets you ready for Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so I think right. that was really very important to my parents. And they still let me audition. I think they believed that process was important if that was something I wanted to do. But the actual crossing the line into working on a set and you becoming a professional mm-hmm. was something I think they felt like I needed a little bit more time to evolve into. I was offered that role in Mighty Ducks. Mm-hmm. They said, you you know, I was about to get into junior high school. I had already gotten in and they, were, they said, your education, you have to go, you have to go to school. And that, that must have uh, not been what the answer you wanted at the time. But. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't realize how bad I was at hockey already. So <laughs> there was no helping me at that point. But once you're in high school, you, I guess you figured out there's a way to actually come close to juggling both things, which just in terms of the schedule of high school, you were able to actually go out during the day, right, for auditions. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles right. and most of the, through the epicenter of auditioning in that way, when I would have free periods or double free periods, a lot of times it was set in a double free period. I would, when I could drive, drive to an audition. A lot of times, you know, school I went to was in the Valley. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those auditions are in Burbank or if it was in Santa Monica, it would be out after school. Like, and I would just go and I would work on it the night before or a few nights before. And then the double free period set it up so I could go in and and audition. And that happened pretty consistently throughout high school. And by your senior year, you and this is something you've shared with me before, that there was this kind of a pivotal moment where you wanted to still be acting in school and you were kind of the big deal actor. And one of them, I would say, sounds by like- By my senior year. By yes. your senior year. Yeah. And yet still the big goal was professional stuff. And so I guess to, to leave it to you, who is Ted Walsh and what happened during your <laughs> senior year? Ted Walsh is now, is, you know, amongst a number of people who grew up in LA and went to the same high school as me is famous in a lot of respects for being a, you know, he's an acting teacher Mm -hmm. at the high school I went to. And for me, he taught, first of all, all of us about, I think the literature of theater, you know, the great works at a very young age and how to respect those words. And at that age is probably one of the most important things I ever learned about how to pick material and what great material was. We worked kind of with the classics at a very young age. So, But I auditioned for my senior year for the, I guess it was the fall play, mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I had been through many productions and, you know, I was going to land a role pretty easily. And I was a favorite. And I had booked an audition, a professional audition, right after the audition for the play. And I didn't really prepare very much for the high school show. But I came in, I kind of read, and I thought, he knows I can do this. And I asked him, Ted, as I was leaving, how to get to the next audition for directions. And so I went to that audition, and you know, I, and the next day I came back, and the cast list had been posted, and my name was not on the cast list anywhere. And, you know, being in high school at that time, you know, this is your world, and it sort of means everything to you. you know? It was crushing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crushing for a high schooler at that time. And I went into him and I said, what's going on? And he said, you walked in, you weren't prepared. You asked about how to get somewhere else to an audition that seemed more important. And you weren't present in the moment. And I don't want somebody in my show who's not prepared and who's not present. And I was pretty devastated, Mm -hmm. not just about not getting into that show, but about that lesson or Mm -hmm. being told that. 
I think we assume ourselves to be sometimes different than we are. And it was a real wake up call for me. And I, I remember that moment and that moment has been a huge part of my professional career mm-hmm. that I actually have had to learn too over the years and growing up in the business. Just in the sense of to never be thinking about the next thing before you're done with the, the current thing? or what? I think being disrespectful to, the, to any process. I think thinking that you're bigger, better, more important than any process. I mean, the ego does play a huge part and is important in terms of drive and in terms of commitment and in terms of belief. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's really destructive. And if you believe yourself to be more important than the piece or the people around the piece, then you're screwed. Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to learn in that one moment, you'll learn it later on. Right. The universe will teach you, as my mother always says. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the nice part about the Ted Walsh story is there was a additional development after that, right? There was. I auditioned for other things, and I ended up landing this role the second semester of my senior year in a movie. This was October Sky. October Sky. First starring role. Yeah. 16 year. You were 16. 16, yeah. But he also cast me because I came back and auditioned for Fiddler on the Roof, which was the spring musical. So this is, you get October Sky, but you haven't done it yet. Now you go back to audition for your spring senior musical. And in the same, at the same time I was auditioning for that and then auditioning for other things and I auditioned for October Sky in the midst of all that. And I landed Tevya in <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof. And, and that was because you just had a different attitude at this point. Yeah. And then I also got the role in October Sky and I, I do accredit Ted Walsh for getting both of those roles. He heard paid you a visit? Yeah, he came to the set of October Sky when I ended up doing it. My parents at the time had allowed that to happen because I had gotten into college already. That was a pretty incredible thing. And they said, you can go do this in your second semester year when everybody else was sort of screwing off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Uh, and so uh, I did that. And he came to the set. And I remember him seeing me um, when I finished the day, my day's work. I like put my clothes back on the hangers and my costume back on the hangers in the trailer. And he was very proud of that moment. And I remember him telling me that watching me hang up those clothes that was exactly the, the right thing to do. You know, I think that kind of discipline is something I love and respect. I think respect for as much as you can have. In a lot of ways, I think there are, I've learned on set, it's a very volatile place. It's so sensitive. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to be kind, but it's also very important not to lose track of the story and the character that you're trying to be a part of. And so for me, you know, sometimes I see people as actors in particular needing to feel like they need to be nice mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. I think nice is different than good, mm-hmm. <laughs> to quote Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> but I do. I think that it is. Right. And I think he was trying to teach me how to be good. So you go off to college and not just any college. You must have been a good student to end up at Columbia. And I was all right. <laughs> I was a better actor than a better student. Than <laughs> <I>. yeah. <laughs> but when you're there, I thought it was interesting that the thing that it sounds like you chose to study was Eastern religions. Why that? Because Columbia doesn't offer really, there's not a performing arts wing really mm-hmm. there in undergraduate. And there are different things you can do around, but there wasn't a lot of artistic expression. There was core curriculum, which was just necessary to go through all the humanities courses and extraordinary courses mm-hmm. that they offer. But there just wasn't any expression mm-hmm. in that way. So I... Somehow I found myself in this intro to Tibetan Buddhism class that Robert Thurman teaches for like 250 students, you know. And not to 
I know this is – he's got a lot more credits than this, but he's also among his credits, Uma's, Uma's father. father. Yes. <laughs> right. And he I is. think he taught David O. Russell. I remember he came up with him too. Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah, yeah. I heard Huckabee's. Yeah. It was like a, a whole – they had a whole – yes. But I went to his class and I was just – he's an incredible mind and an amazing performer himself. And mm-hmm. I was really drawn in. But I was also really moved by the idea of spirituality in an intellectual setting. And then I also was really moved by this idea of Tibetan culture, mm-hmm. this move – over thousands of years from being this dictatorship, this warring society, and then over thousands of years evolving into a country that is led by a spiritual leader and has no military to speak mm-hmm, of. Mm-hmm. And that evolution was fascinating to me, and so I just started to focus on that idea. Because I think maybe somewhere in me that macro was interesting in the, the micro in each one of us, mm-hmm. that kind of need to fight to blame and to push back and to show our prowess and our power over sort of acceptance and the evolution into that idea, which I am very far from mastering, but it was a really interesting idea. So how does a guy whose parents are adamant about him staying in school and whose sounds like he was enjoying being in school wind up leaving school after I think only halfway, basically? Well, I finished the requirements in the core curriculum and then the second year, the third year, you know, your junior and senior year is all about focusing on a major concentration. And I guess my my thought was opportunities were starting to come to me. And my focus and my concentration is really making movies or performing or being in the theater. And they were starting to happen. And I thought... Because you were in New York, you were still getting opportunities to audition. I was still auditioning. Yeah. I was still auditioning. Mm-hmm. I had an agent at the time. And I was starting to get these opportunities and it felt logical to me and i think there comes a time where you have to accept who you really are and what you really mm-hmm. love and i just started to do that i think you went through this period that in another interview you called the quote teenager in transition roles close quote and i guess these would include lovely and amazing highway the good girl and probably most notably to listeners, Donnie Darko. Yeah. These are all early 2000s, I guess, right when you've gone out into the, you know, left school and are focusing on this full time for the first time. Did it feel like you're gaining momentum? Did it feel like you were being accepted in the industry on a certain track, like you were heading towards something that you wanted to be as far as a adult leading man? Or is that just a weird time where you're not quite a kid and you're not quite an adult? I think both. Yeah. I think I have a, a somewhat... I don't want to say contradictory nature, but I have a tendency to try and, you know, if a wave is moving one way and everybody starts watching too carefully, I like to try and figure out another way around it and a different direction to yeah. surf it. You know, yeah. I, so for me, it was about, there were all these movies being made about, I was auditioning for lots of them, you know, the high school movies and, you know, it was all about sexuality mm-hmm. and it was all about getting the girl and it was all these sort of convention, more conventional mm-hmm. st- ways of storytelling. And for me, I just, I'd audition for them and I would hope to get them and I'd never get cast in them. What was the feedback you were getting? You know, it's just as it always is, which as I've grown up in business and I've had more opportunities and had the opportunity to be on the opposite side of that process, it was just, I was like a bit too awkward. I don't think I've ever really fit in the spaces people have necessarily wanted me to. And I think my sister probably has felt this way too. She can speak much more articulately to, you know, the experience of of a woman in the Mm -hmm, process, mm -hmm. but particularly about sexuality and conforming to those ideas. Mm -hmm. 
I think neither of us ever really fit in a space that we felt comfortable in convention. Mm-hmm. And so I read Scott Rosenberg wrote Highway, mm-hmm. which was called a Leonard Cohen Afterworld <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably should have kept the initial title. <laughs> and it was a work of art. He wrote this incredible story of a sort of heterosexual love story between these two guys mm-hmm. on a journey after Kurt Cobain had been killed. Mm-hmm speaking about what that person meant to a generation Mm -hmm. and searching for identity. And I think I have always, from very early on, fallen in love with characters who are on a search for identity Mm -hmm. very openly, like whether it's psychological, Mm -hmm. sexual, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. is fascinating to me. And same thing with Donnie Darko. I read that and I was like, whoa, this is the underbelly of teen (laughs) Right. You know, stories. Right. Walking the line. That felt more honest to me than the other stuff. And probably just because I wasn't casting the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there was a, a big turning point of a year, I would guess it was 2005 or at least what led up to the movies that were released in 2005, which included John Madden's Proof, Sam Mendes's Jarhead, and then, of course, Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain. You were now playing the grown-up complex parts and I think being looked at in a, a different way at that point, right? Yeah. Was there something that happened? Did you suddenly understand something differently or was it, you know, and, and that made you better and able to get parts like those? Or was it just that maybe you were now the right age, more mature? What changed that allowed that to happen? I think you build a certain kind of energy in our business. You know, mm-hmm. I think years and years of auditioning for things, relationships, Relationships with casting directors, having auditioned for... I had auditioned for Ang Lee before. Another Western. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I had auditioned for a lot of people. And I think they're, those rumblings, though you feel like they're futile at the time, really do grow. Particularly, I think, if you have something to offer and people mm-hmm. see it. It's the hardest thing for an actor to understand when you're in the process of rejection. But I think you are building a swell. And that's what I felt probably in that period of time that all of a sudden, and I keep using these weird surfing references because I don't even surf, I don't know why, (laughs) but there's that feeling, you know, there's that kind of feeling of all of a sudden the sort of waves get bigger and you're in Mm -hmm. a different space and then you, you know, you're ready to go. And that's what happened. And also just, there is the time of like hype and heat and I see it with actors all the time, Mm -hmm. you know? People take it, they fumble it, or they take it and they go with it. And Mm -hmm. some people have incredible luck. Some of us are just, you know, doing good stuff, trying to survive, you know. But I mean, even sometimes it's interesting. Like we we recently recorded an episode that hasn't aired yet, but we did it with Tom Hanks. And he was saying sometimes it's just like in his case, he changed agents and they Mm -hmm. got him differently. I don't know if along the way that anything like that happened with you that happens to coincide with this. But it is interesting that it can be just somebody understanding you in a different way. It's not that you were doing anything worse before, but now you're clicking, I guess, in a way. But Yeah, you evolve in relationships. My agents at the time were incredible. Kim Hodgert was my agent at CAA at the mm-hmm. time, and Evelyn O'Neill was my manager, mm-hmm. and they are just extraordinary mm-hmm. women. I mean, just incredible human mm-hmm. beings and badasses. Mm-hmm. And I think we were sort of on fire in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, you can only really work as hard as the other one works. You know, it is a relationship and a very, very intimate one. And you evolve in the same way any relationship does. And I think that is true. At that time we were all, I mean, Kim and I had been working together since I was 
13 or 14 wow. years old. Wow. So one of the closest relationships in your life. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we spoke every day, yeah. you know? So I think that is, that was a huge period of time. We just started, the momentum started happening and we just were all kind of firing on, right. Jake, go in. Yeah. Like now is, it, I'm, these analogies <laughs> work because yeah. they work, but it's like, all right, get on the field and go. Yeah. Like do what you do. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like. Well, the Ang Lee example is particularly interesting because you referenced that you had met with him before and it didn't work out. So now, just in a matter of a few years, can you explain, I guess, just to show the contrast of how you had changed in those few years, what happened the first time where it didn't work out and then what happened the second time when it did with him? Well, you you obviously learn. if You learn if you listen. And I went in for Ride with the Devil mm-hmm. and I had bleached hair and I had all these necklaces and all this stuff. I was in high school at the time. <laughs> great style. And, um, and I did the audition and I remember, I think it was A.V. Kaufman. You know, I don't think casting directors get enough Mm -hmm. love Mm -hmm. and also enough respect, honestly. And I credit A.V. as, you know, you talk about turning points. It's just somebody believing in you. Mm -hmm. She was one of those people. But I had auditioned for Aang and the feedback after was, don't ever come in with those necklaces and with it, like try and look as if he's of the time mm-hmm. because Ang could have no perspective on whether or not this guy could be in this movie because mm-hmm. he just looked so current and right. of the time. Know the material you're coming in to, mm-hmm. to perform. Sure enough, when I went in for October Sky, which was just a little bit afterwards, mm-hmm. I dressed like as, as close as I could to 50s. I redid my hair and I, I walked in to give all the filmmakers, as brilliant as they were, a perspective mm-hmm. on the fact that I could be in that period of time. Mm-hmm. So Aang in one way got me my first job yeah. with that, that lesson, as well as the preparation that Ted Walsh had said to me, along with, I should say, you know, my father sitting with me for hours and helping me and reading mm-hmm. every single bit, every side I've mm-hmm. ever read up mm-hmm. to that moment. Yeah, so a, big a lot of those things. So, yeah. And then when I came in for Aang for Brokeback, I remember walking to a room and just him sitting in a corner and one of his funny little hats he wears, <laughs> <laughs> baseball hats, and saying very little to me and sort of dismissing me after five minutes and saying, thank you, and you can go now. And I don't know what magic Avi, you know, <laughs> <laughs> performed, but, you know, about a month later, he, he offered me and Heath the roles. Do you think it might have had anything to do with the fact, I believe you and Heath actually went back a ways, right? Yes, we did, yeah. So the fact that you're not literally pitting two strangers in a pretty intense situation where there's never at that point even been a movie centering on a gay love story. And here you've got two straight actors who are going to be doing that. I wonder if you think that was a consideration for them or or if it made life any easier for you guys. Well, we knew each other because of we auditioned for Moulin Rouge. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was in the end, it was between me and Heath and you and McGregor. Heath and I had been shuffled in and out of rooms and <laughs> never really seen each other in person, right. but I kept hearing this guy, Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger. And when we didn't get that part, we actually confided in each other of our frustration of right. Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> 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 and so we became friends then. So I think really Aang had a couple of combinations in mind, whether it was like coloring or look or behavior mm-hmm. or what he had seen. And we were not the first combination that he wanted. You knew that then? Yeah. It was like, I think there was another combination of some, you know, of guys that he was looking at. And if it wasn't them, then he was going to come to me and Heath. But it wouldn't be Heath and someone else. And it wouldn't be me and someone else. It was me and Heath. Right. So somehow Aang had seen some sort of spark between us in our nature that we were not clear about. But it was never like you two auditioned next to each other or had a chemistry read or anything like that. Nope. Interesting. And 
the movie, just because I think it's one of yours that will be discussed forever, I just got to ask. It's made in just 42 days from what I read. It's mm-hmm. a big project. How early on in the process did you guys realize this was something special? I mean, I think something special means something different. It's a relative phrase because mm-hmm. it was something special already to be cast in an Ang Lee movie. Mm-hmm. So it was special to me. I couldn't believe that I was in an Ang Lee movie. Very much like very recently, I couldn't believe I was cast in a Jacques Audiard movie. Mm-hmm. There are these people, these filmmakers, these sort of legends and storytellers that you never believe you work with. Mm-hmm. Mine are probably a bit more obscure than others, but Aang, I think, kind of lines up with a lot of right, other people's. Right, right. And that was that. And then when we were on set, I think there was just something in the process that we knew was very special just because the way in which it was done. We were, we were living in trailers by a river, essentially, in a trailer park for the first half of the movie. So we were all cooking and hanging out and spending time with each other. And that was just special being what it was. We had no idea what the movie and the result of the movie would be and what it would bring. Which really like started a massive, or was certainly part of the start of a massive change in the culture. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I had an acting coach who died a few years ago who said, you know, the target draws forth the arrow. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was more of the culture asking for it than mm-hmm. it was some sort of brave duty on the part of filmmakers. But I do think that whichever way you look at it, mm-hmm. there was a need and it became something bigger than any of us could ever have imagined. Amazing. So you came away from that film with a newfound level of respect from the industry and as reflected in the Oscar nomination, which I think was your first. And what do you remember of the outlook at that point as you're looking towards the future? Because the next few years, it seems like you were maybe seizing the opportunity. I, I mean, I wonder how you approach roles, if you approach roles any differently after that, or it seems like directors were, if they weren't already the primary consideration before, it looks like they were after, because in those next few years, you've got Zodiac with David Fincher, Brothers with Jim Sheridan, Love and Other Drugs with Edward Zwick. These are all guys who I know you held in a very high regard. Yeah. I think that kind of attention for a movie is extraordinary, offers all these opportunities, but at a certain age, when you're still trying to figure out your identity, becomes a little confusing. Because did that coincide with you now really becoming a, let's say, somebody the paparazzi is interested in or things like not that? Not Or had that already happened? Not necessarily that. Yeah. I mean, that's its own journey. Yeah. I think artistically it means all of a sudden people aren't choosing you necessarily. You have a pick of opportunities. Right. So how are you going to use your mind to pick those things? Right. And all of a sudden the business starts to kind of rush in and mm-hmm. you know your creative instincts start to counteract that sometimes they move in then your idea of what you want to be what you've always wished you could be mm-hmm. as an actor and how you want to be seen as opposed to who you really are mm-hmm. all of those questions without you really knowing it starts and then you're asked at a certain age to be a professional to learn how to be a man mm-hmm. to be a gentleman mm-hmm. to be thoughtful in the space of like there's pressure on you and attention and like you're saying even on the outside world mm-hmm. So all those questions when you're growing up anyway, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out. And they have all these opportunities. You know, there were moments where it gives you an interesting perspective because I'm, for instance, like at the time I'm 26 years old. Right. And someone's like, people are like right after that moment, like, it's fine. He can play 45 and have two kids, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then three years later after that, you know, when a couple movies don't do as well or whatever, right. it's like, 
you know, you're you're 30, and they're like, 30, you know, he should really be 45 <laughs> to have two kids. You're like, wait a second, when I was 26, you know. Right. So I think you see the you see the the mania mm-hmm. of those things, and right. I think that it gives you an interesting perspective, but it's also confusing. So to me, I started to try and it was a confusing time for me in terms of trying to pick things to do and what I believed in and who I was as an actor and focusing on my craft. I think those directors who I love and I love working with Ed and I love him so much. And, you know, there are a lot of the people that I worked with are incredible. I think though, I maybe, if I'm honest, Mm -hmm. lost a little perspective on craft during that time and my focus. Can I just interrupt with one thing, which is that it seems like also in that period. So let's say those five years after Brokeback where you're figuring out you know, the, who you are, screen persona, what kind of an actor you want to be, all of those things that you're referring to. There's also another moment, which I think is interesting. And I'm not <laughs> saying this to give you a hard time. I'm just wondering. I think it's like, no, I'm wondering no, what no. Is, what's coming. So Prince of Persia, The yeah, Sands yeah, of yeah, Time. Yeah. This is yeah, 2010. Yeah. Just to remind people, this is inspired by a video game, $200 million budget. Mm-hmm. You're going to carry it, I guess, sort of like a sword and sandals type feel mm-hmm. of a project. That, to me, feels like something that, and maybe I'm way off about this, but someone else said, this is what you should be doing because this is the right next step, as opposed to most of these other decisions that have worked out better for you where it feels like you saw fit and Mm -hmm. you went after it. So I I could be way off about that, but I, I just wonder if there was any takeaway from that one as far as what kind of an actor you wanted to be going forward. Yeah. I mean, but let me just first preface this by saying that every single project is about what you want to do as an actor, hopefully, if you have the opportunities going forward. Right. Each one leads into the next and you learn something and that lesson is either left a little unlearned so you learn it a little more somewhere Mm -hmm. else or it's learned and you move on. Right. I mean, I think in the case of Prince of Persia, I also should preface it by saying that I take full responsibility for every choice I make. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably accredit more people than myself in success than I do in things that people would consider less of a success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I take those things that are less successful more on the chin, and that's just my nature, mm-hmm. and it will always be my nature. And mm-hmm. so it's changed my perspective on making choices, mm-hmm. knowing if I'm going to take it on the chin. I'm going to be fully committed right. to the choice I'm making. Right. And yes, I do think that something like Prince of Persia was one of those things where there was a a lot of talk of doing a bigger sized film or something like that and that that would create more opportunities and also would be really fun. Mm-hmm. And it looked like a lot of fun to me. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Bruckheimer was amazing and lovely to me and pretty much everyone involved in that project, you have to learn your strengths and what you can be good at. And again, I guess that's probably part of it was like me being able to have perspective on the things I could do and things I can't do. And I learned that on that movie, I think, you know, like I'm very instinctual. Mm -hmm. I trust that in scenes. And sometimes you just got to deliver a line and commit to it and (laughs) hit your mark. Right. And that was something I learned, you know, I was like what type of actor I was. That would, because after that, Ever since, it's essentially exclusively been theater or character-driven, mid-range budget 
movies. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I also made another decision, which is to understand space in which people, like, where do I love making movies? I mm -hmm. love feeling like you have a tremendous community behind you. Mm -hmm. And somehow I felt when the movie was a bit smaller, there was a real community mm -hmm. together pushing and striving towards something. And that energy is infectious to me. I love that energy. Mm -hmm. I get frustrated when people say indie films. Mm -hmm. It sort of annoys me right. because I don't know why we have to qualify. I just think that energy of making a movie which is where I've come where I came from mm -hmm. you know uh, that's what I love it's in my heart is that and yeah and I also started to realize the business it, mm -hmm. it woke me up to this is a business I enjoy the business of it and I'm not that bad at the business mm -hmm. of it so I should get in on it as opposed to having other people tell me what they think their idea of the business is or trying to mold you into a box because yeah, it seems yeah. like what Prince of Persia essentially would be is what people are going to in massive numbers still. It's not wrong that that's the kind of movie that people are going to, but it's not necessarily the thing that is creatively satisfying for you. Well, I don't agree with that okay. fully. Okay. I think actually what I realized and what I realized from a few movies is it's a business of relationships. Mm -hmm. It's a business of intimacy. It's about people who are right and meant to be working together. Mm -hmm. And I have honed, I think I've honed the skill really of connecting with filmmakers who share a similar vision mm -hmm. and been much clearer about that, you know, and clear about earlier on, this mm -hmm. is about preparation too. Mm -hmm. Again, Ted Walsh comes always yeah. back yeah. in, which is being very clear in the outset how I want to play a character, mm -hmm. how I see it. And then presenting that to a filmmaker and saying, do you see the same thing? What are your ideas? Oh, your ideas are better than mine. Oh, they're more, oh, or, oh, they're inspired by this idea. Mm -hmm. You know, then the exchange starts to happen. Right. And then you go, this is the right person. This is, it, this is the right type of relationship. Is it just harder to have those kind of relationships when the machine is so big? I don't know. You? I don't think so. I just think you need to find people who, you know, I would love to make like a larger budget size movie mm -hmm. where I know, again, like I'm saying, you know, if you're going to be able to, you're going to succeed or fail in that space, you have made specific character decisions that you love, right? regardless of whether or not people love them. Not trying to check off boxes that this will please this demographic, this will do this, which on those bigger movies, because so much is riding on it, tends to be the case. People ask, people ask me that, I think, sort of, that there is a strategy or something, mm -hmm. doing strategy. One you know, for there's me, like, one for them. Right, that, that yeah. comes up a lot, right. that idea. I right. think they're always like, well, George Clooney right. says, you know, <laughs> and I'm just like, right. I mean, even if you look at like Clooney's career, I don't think that equation has worked perfectly for him no. either. So it's not an equation that really works. I think it's about if you have the opportunity, realizing that the only person in the end who will be able to take responsibility for those opportunities right. is you. Well, let's... Now, if we can tick through the years since Prince of Persia, because <laughs> both us, both <laughs> no, well, because what I what I want to say here is that so 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That's seven years. Last seven years, I think, and you you don't have to comment. I know you're a humble man, but I would put yours. Humble, but, <laughs> I would put your last seven years against anybody's last seven years, and not only screen work, but let's. Tee up because I've been lucky enough to see each one of these three theater productions, theatrical productions that you did in New York, starting, and this all starts right after Prince of Persia, 2012, off Broadway. If there is, I haven't found it yet. I guess actually your first thing had been in London with This Is Our Youth, but that was eight years earlier. So now to come to New York, first with 
if there is, I haven't found it yet, off-Broadway, then Constellations in 2014, and then earlier this year, something I was lucky enough to see your last performance of, the where you gave some remarks afterwards, Sunday in the Park with George. Why does a guy who can make you know, a lot of money and get a lot of great roles on screen, choose to go to the theater where you're only going to be able to reach a certain number of people. They're not going to be able to pay you that much. What is the allure of the theater for you? I mean, you know, the way in which you pose that question is like based on convention and based on what you value, you know, or what one values, you know, we as a society tend to value success in terms of, you know, how much money one makes and what college you went to, in my case, a good one, (laughs) (laughs) and who you marry and, you know, all of those things. Mm -hmm. I think that over the past seven years, what I've started to value is when I feel real connection, you know, and I know when I'm on stage, the gratitude that I feel. I feel a profound gratitude for being able to be up there in front of an audience that's assembled or whatever time of the day or night to be able to see something. And I feel responsible to them. Mm-hmm. And I feel invigorated by them, even when the energy is weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's nothing more thrilling to me than that. Literally nothing more thrilling. And no more of an honor in my life than that. I can't put it really into words. Mm-hmm. I'm trying. Yeah. But so to me, I think that exchange, that play, that interaction is one big long take. And each of these was really a bold choice theatrically also if, if there is i haven't found it yet it's you and a young girl mm-hmm. pretty much just most of it is you two constellations solely you and ruth wilson and that is non-stop intense i've never seen anything like that where it's shifting character basically playing how many characters i think there are 75 scenes in 93 minutes or it something. was insane and then Sunday in the park with george i just saw this this obviously revival of sondheim reopened the Hudson, and I remembered a year, not even a year before, at the Tonys, during a commercial break, James Corden had come and badgered you into singing A Whole New World, and you looked like singing was the last thing in the world you wanted to do. So when I hear that you're going to be doing Sunday in the Park with George, I I thought there had been a typo. But then you were were obviously, people, if it had not, for Tony's eligibility, weirdness, if that had not happened, there was no question you were getting a Tony nomination. People... Love that. So I just wonder for you, is it like, what can I do that's going to scare me the most for theater? Because that would seem like it was pretty scary. (laughs) No, I don't don't think that's like, it's conscious. I think, again, it's about relationships. Janine Tesori, who wrote Fun Home and Mm -hmm. is a Tony winner and an extraordinary human being and an amazing composer, saw me in Constellations and said, will you come to City Center where she was the artistic director and do Little Shop of Horrors with Alan Green? Mm -hmm. To which I refused. And then she just incessantly sent me weird notes and presents to the stage door for about a month until (laughs) I agreed. And I did Little Shop of Horrors at City Center over four performance. And it was a, it was this sort of smash, like emotionally, artistically, you know, it was just amazing. And she came to me and she said, what do we do next? Let's do Sunday in the Park at City Center just for four performances. And that thing just came out of, again, a discovery of a piece of, a masterpiece and the joy it brought me. But had I don't, you ever sung in anything before? Yeah. I mean, yes. I've mm-hmm. sung my entire life. And mm-hmm. it's not something, you know, a thing about me is I'm trying more to open up to the things and the things I love and the person I am. Mm-hmm. I think I've 
probably hidden those things, you know, because I think someone just qualifies you as a movie actor mm-hmm. and there's, it's such an incredible thing mm-hmm. to be able to do mm-hmm. that you stay within that space. Oh, oh, he sings, you know, right. <laughs> and you, everybody sings, right. you know, but then I would see people like Hugh Jackman or Anne Hathaway mm-hmm. sing at the Oscars. I remember watching them and going, man, that's bull, man, that makes me feel joy. Mm-hmm. Like it just, my heart just opened up. And I think you pretend to be cool for only so long, right? Then you stop giving a shit. <laughs> and then you stop giving a shit. And then you just say like, right. I'm just, right. I'm not cool in that way. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think Sunday in the Park with George was, is about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is about that. And was not about facing a fear. It was just about moving into joy. Mm-hmm. No, it was great. So back to films, just to note the ones that connect from the beginning of this era through what we're here really to talk about. If you can just share a couple of thoughts. I know, let's start with End of Watch for David Ayer. You're playing Cop. I think it was probably your most immersive film preparation prior to doing a film up to that point. Yeah. I I remember five months of prep for 22 days of shooting is a lot. Just what stands out as you look back on that one? Even if it didn't necessarily get the awards love and things that sometimes you hope for, people took notice. Yeah. Certainly changed David Ayer's career. Yeah, I think it redefined David yeah. in a lot of ways. I think David was a uh, his process. That was his process. Mm-hmm. So I stole his process, and I realized how helpful it was, but also I realized how much I loved it. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's what one of the great things about being an actor is your preparation and your time you get to learn from real people doing real jobs. And that's when I realized that acting is incredible. You have this, basically this, not always carte blanche, but you have a a card into worlds that people do want to share. Initially, probably a presentation of a world that they would like to show. Mm -hmm. And then over time, the real world. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing better. And it's where whenever I have an interview or I'm talking to a journalist, it's the thing we share Mm -hmm. is when you really get to immerse yourself into somebody's world Mm -hmm. and really get to know someone like in our case, Mm -hmm. over a long period of time, I think those relationships become what your work is about. Right. And so David really showed me that. And then also I think there was a really cool thing I learned, which was if you believe in it enough, you can make a movie for a a low budget. Seven million. Yeah. That's crazy. And then it ends up making what, 45, 50 or something. And you go, Oh, I can stay in the game. Yeah. Oh, that was amazing. (laughs) Then yeah. you go next year after that, 2013, not often do you see a major actor make two movies with the same director in one year. You were an early adopter on Denis Villeneuve, and something clearly clicked there with both Prisoners and Enemy. Prisoners, I think, was the higher profile release. You're the guy with some ticks leading a police investigation into missing kids. Why did you two click to that extent, and what did you take away from, from those? Friendship, open heart intimacy, a real friend, somebody who was a friend over filmmaker, Mm -hmm. someone who had the heart and the mind to be able to make a real relationship and to want a real relationship and who cared deeply and met someone who cared deeply too. Mm -hmm. That was basically it. And he saw something in me that he believed in and I didn't trust him at first (laughs) and I just dove in. Thankfully, because of my, I will have to say because of my agent, Mm Brent Morley, who's mm-hmm. my agent at WME, you know, I remember being shying away after a meeting and he was like, you're doing this. <laughs> you should hear the way you talk about it, about that meeting. You're doing this. Mm. 
And I think I would say my relationship with Denis and that process is Brent Morley's fault. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's, that was just about a a friend. Yeah. And this huge realization. And at the time, you know, Denis wasn't like who he is now. I think he'd only done on Sundays that people knew about, right? Yeah. And they loved it. Yeah. And credit to Andrew Kosov and and Broderick too there that they saw that and loved him and have loved him from the beginning. Right. I would say they have before even me because right. he was signed on to that project right. before we made Enemy. But it was where I went like, I want to just make movies who, with people who are friends, people who appreciate me and love me, not yeah. people who I'm I'm going to have to chase and right. hope will love me. 2014, the year after that, is Nightcrawler. I believe that was Dan Gilroy's directorial debut. It was, yeah. Remind people you play kind of a creepy loner who finds the acceptance that he craves by <laughs> capturing people's tragedies yeah. and sharing them with the world. Mm-hmm. Another one that you majorly had to commit to or chose to commit to, 30 pounds, lost and got into a very weird headspace. What convinced you that the part and the film for a guy who had not made one previously were worth that kind of commitment? It was one of the best screenplays I ever read. It was also a part that I didn't physically fit into, at least the way that I saw it. And it's also something where I started to realize when you actually have craft, you you can telegraph what you see. Mm-hmm. They can be influenced by a filmmaker or a filmmaker can help you see it. But when you feel it in your bones and you first read something, you then see something. Sometimes it's a long journey to where mm-hmm. you see, and sometimes it's a little shorter. Sometimes it involves something mental, emotional. Sometimes it involves something physical. Sometimes all three. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I, I thought from the description of everything that this character was, there he could not be physically imposing. He had to be mentally imposing. And there's a devotion to the audience mm-hmm. that I started to realize from David Ayer and from End mm-hmm. of Watch that I wanted to put into that. Mm-hmm. I had to service those words. The next year after that was one that I think is as good as anything you've done. But unfortunately, I think thanks to good old Harvey Weinstein did not get the release that it deserved in that Southpaw, mm. right? I mean, you had to work your ass off for that one as well to get just the physical aspects of it. You're, I was a really bad boxer before I started. I'm not going to say I'm a great boxer now, but... You look believable. <laughs> I, I really... That was yeah. my fear. Yeah. You know, so... I mean, it's too bad that that didn't get a wider. But 2016, Nocturnal Animals. I know you and Amy Adams hit it off on that one. And yes. Tom Ford is very interesting filmmaker. Yes. But that brings us... 2017 stronger these last few minutes. So do you remember where you were when you first heard about the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013? Yes, I was in New York. I was in my apartment. I heard about it on my phone, and then I turned on the television, and then I saw all of those images. And I saw the image of Jeff Bowman, one of the early first images, confused, very unclear at that moment. Like so many of these images that we see, seems like almost weekly now. Mm-hmm. And then I had no idea that our lives would intersect in the way that they have. How long after that did you first learn there were efforts to turn his book into a film? And how did you wind up getting involved, not only to the extent that you wanted to play him, but that you also are a producer of this movie? It was about a year after that. I read a very early draft of Stronger. And I talked with Todd Lieberman, who developed the project, You know, who bought the book and adapted it in the first draft with John Polano who wrote a wonderful screenplay and I just fell in love with the character and I thought I want to play this character. He was so funny and through all the tragedy and just such an oddball, 
such a sort of struggling with becoming a man, this event that it wasn't dwelled upon. It was sort of the catalyst for change for him, which I thought was incredible. And one thing led to another over a long period of time. And, you know, David Gordon Green came onto the project and I was on it just as an actor. Then financing started to slip because there was discussions about another Boston movie. And it looked a little shinier and (laughs) potentially more financially feasible, I guess, maybe lucrative. And so I had made a relationship with Bold Films when I had done Nightcrawler. They financed Nightcrawler and I produced that movie. We had gone into a deal and I started my production company with Reva Marker, my producing partner. This is nine stories. Nine stories. Yes. And it just started. And as financing started to slip, I slipped the script to Bold. I said, do you guys want to make this? They said yes very mm-hmm. quickly. And all of a sudden, Nine Stories was producing it. And now it's been two and a half years of no sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so when in that process did you first actually meet Jeff Bowman? And I know it's it's become a relationship that's very important to you beyond apart from the movie. So just how has that evolved? I met him a few months after I read the screenplay and we were in the process of sort of pre-pre-production on the film. It was about a little less than a year before we started filming. So I met him, I went out to dinner with him and Aaron, his wife at the time, Mm -hmm. and I was terrified to meet him. How come? You reach this point where, you know, you you wax poetic about, and we have already for the past however many minutes about (laughs) your craft and you know, how important it is to you and all the sacrifices you've made, you know, and as an actor and how seriously you take yourself. And then you're faced with someone like Jeff. And I think you're faced with the fact that everything you think you've done, worked so hard, nothing, it pales in comparison to the things he's done to survive and to eventually thrive in the world. And so you're faced with yourself and all your complaints and all your vanity and all the crappy idiosyncrasies of your personality and then you're also faced with that question of what you would do in that circumstance and the strength you have the kindness and the goodness you have in your own heart and I think it was a mixture of all of those things for me and I think I was a bit paralyzed like just walking through the door to meet him Mm -hmm. and I really feel there comes a point where you realize you could never be the person that you're playing. Mm -hmm. And that was that moment. And yet I was already in. (laughs) No turning back. (laughs) Like, yeah. And in with not just me, but with a whole lot of other people. It's the reason I'm here talking with you today. Mm -hmm. And it's the reason why I just don't ever give up on this movie. How did he disarm your, your apprehension about being with him, playing him, doing all those things, and then also related how did you and Tatiana Maslany, when she signed on, you know, what he and Aaron went through is obviously was a very challenging thing. Now you and Tatiana have to recreate this. And I just wonder how you two approach this together. It's interdependent as much as any yeah. relationship could be. He trusted me. Mm-hmm. I have no clue why, <laughs> but he trusted me. And I think that's what eased me. Something I trusted him Mm -hmm. that he trusted me. Mm -hmm. And I've been like that the entire time. Mm -hmm. He's seen something in me and believed in something in me. So I've continued. Mm -hmm. With Tatiana, I think she feels very similarly. We were thrust into this world trying to portray these people as honestly as possible. And she has the same intentions as me. She is 
you know, the other night we had a screening and Hugh Jackman was lovely enough to host it and talked about the movie. And in the midst of all of it, Tatiana didn't come out in front of the audience. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, because mm-hmm. she hadn't been really introduced. No one had been really introduced. But we sort of walked out. Me and Jeff walked out. Mm-hmm. And I realized she's not in this for the attention that this brings. She's in it for an honesty and a truth and portraying the story, but also playing these characters that she mm-hmm. plays. And she's played more than I have in- In one show. Less, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's why when we were together in those scenes, right. I think there was just, we were terrified, but we went for it. I mean, that dressing removal scene is the one that I think will be in your reel when they give you an honorary Oscar at night. You know, hopefully they don't <laughs> make you wait that long. But I mean, forever, that's going to that's gonna be, it's an amazing scene. And you guys had to, I mean, was there anything more intense for you than that one? No, it was beautiful too. Mm-hmm. A real partner in that. And then also the real people. You know, Dr. Kalish, who's a surgeon who amputated Jeff's legs and the nurses from BMC all around us who are not in the frame, but you hear their voices and just this extraordinary actress across from me who was not going to stop and not going to give up and would go farther than I would go. Mm -hmm. And that's a once in a lifetime kind of thing. With the scenes after that, where you're obviously playing Jeff after the, after the bombing and having to simulate having lost your own legs. I know this is something people have been portraying on film going back to Ronald Reagan, but it's in the film you guys reference Forrest Gump in a funny way. But I just wonder these days, it's, it's, it still kind of takes your breath away to see, you know, how believably you guys can do that. And I just wonder what the process is to create the appearance that you've lost your legs and also for you, how that affects your ability to act. Yeah. You know, God is in the details in that way. And it takes a it does take a village in the case of something like that. Just as it, it took a village to bring Jeff up and out mm-hmm. and back walking again. The weird irony of doing a film like this where you play a bilateral amputee is it takes these incredible minds, in this case, over 20 people, to bring it to life and to make it feel real. And we had an incredible visual effects team in Mikros, which is now disbanded, but they are their work is incredible mm-hmm. because they never once said to us, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. And then we had an amazing visual effects makeup department headed by Donald Moat, who I've made a number of films with. Mm-hmm. But the idea was to mix in camera and visual effects stuff so that the eye never really knew. And then I also say an incredible cinematographer and Sean Bobbitt and Dylan Tishner, editor, and David Gordon Green in choosing when you really explicitly see things and when you don't. And you guys worked in some cramped spaces and it was Yeah, pretty- I mean, that was David's real choice was to say, you know, to make the physicality a lot harder was every single room we were in was impossible to maneuver in. It was <laughs> so small. Yeah, yeah. Like there were so many small rooms until you get into the huge room that is Spalding Rehabilitation Center in the mm-hmm. movie, which is where Jeff really learned how to walk again. Yeah. Last question is just... When did Jeff and Aaron see the film for the first time? How are they doing today? And mm-hmm. and what do you hope people will take away from this? Which I think is, it's from from having heard you speak about this a few times before, it seems like it's something that has meant as much to you as almost any acting job you've done. It's more than an acting job to you. And the relationships are important, all of that. So just their reaction and what you hope people will take away and also how you're different from having done it. Yes, this movie has changed me in ways that I can't 
really put into words and is the most important film I've made so far for a number of reasons. One is that it's more than a film. I didn't really know that going into it, mm -hmm. but I've discovered that. And it has, because of Jeff and what he went through, but who he is as a human being even today. Jeff and Aaron saw the film for the first time with both of their families earlier in the summer. And that was pretty nerve-wracking. Jeff had changed the date a few times, so I couldn't make that screening. But David Gordon Green was there and John Polano and, and Todd Lieberman. And apparently Patty, his <laughs> Jeff's mom, went out for a smoke break like five times in the middle of the screening. <laughs> and at the end, you know, her response was, my apartment's just not that dirty. <laughs> Let so, that be the worst criticism. Yeah, all so, yeah, yeah, I know. You know, it was very emotional for them. And, you know, Jeff just wrote me at the end. He texted me, you know, good job. And then I didn't hear from him for about a week oh, and a half. That must have been awkward. That was hard. But when I did finally talk to him, you know, he said he needed time to process. It's a lot. He had left it in our hands and he had entrusted us with something. And I think we helped him see things about himself that helped him heal, which to me is why I think this movie means more to me than anyone I've ever made. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about Brokeback and... I've had people come up to me over the years and say how that movie changed their life or how it made them realize something. And you see the power of movies. And I have spent a lot of time in my career making excuses for the absurdity of our world, Hollywood, and all of its confusion, you know, apparent sickness over the past few months, you know, that we've sort of discovered the complications, the vanity. But what I will never accept is anyone telling me that movies are an extraordinarily powerful tool for communication and ultimately in a small way for change and sometimes in a big way. Mm -hmm. And if this movie only helped Jeff survive, then the two and a half years I've spent making it has been worthwhile. If it touches anyone else, it's extra credit. Mm -hmm. And Jeff and Aaron today are, they're raising Nora, their daughter, who is incredible. Jeff is 15 months sober. We talk almost every day, and I love him. <laughs> well, it's lucky to have a great actor and a great guy play him. So thank you for doing he, this. He'd be like, he'd be like, <laughs> he's not that great. But <laughs> no, thanks for doing it. Thank, thank you it. always. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.